Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast again with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Mark Herbert. He is a recovering corporate HR executive. He is a an aspiring cult builder. That's cult with an L. And he's also somebody who sees HR as the conscience of the organization. Mark, welcome. Thank you very much, Mark. Great to be with you. Excellent. Mark, would you mind giving us 60 seconds on your background so people understand where you've come from? Started my career, Marcus, uh, four decades ago in an interesting place. Uh, went to work in mining. And all of those movies and all you've seen about it, they're pretty real. It was like a throwback to the 1950s where I went to work in a copper mine in, in Arizona. We had the distinction in a right-to-work state. Uh, for those of your viewers that are not familiar with that, that means that, that people cannot be forced to join a union. In a right-to-work state, we were 100% unionized. The relationship between management and the union was uh, hostile to the point of almost open warfare. So for a 22-year-old, you know, all idealistic and everything like that, it was a very, very interesting learning experience. So I spent about 18 months there. From there, I went on to work for a, a small organization called Honeywell. I worked for them in three different locations. Uh, unfortunately, what I got very, very good at Marcus says I was a I was a problem cleaner upper. I was too young to realize that uh, when people certain assignments were open is because uh, there was a lot of risk. But on the other hand, with risk goes reward. So I got moved around a lot. They moved me from Phoenix to Hartford, Connecticut, and then to Philadelphia. And then I then I got moved out and I went to work for a small high tech firm uh, in Eugene, Oregon. And I thought it was going to be a fairly short term thing. And I've actually been here in Eugene for 30 years since. Uh, in 1993, I left corporate, went into consulting for the first time, have had an opportunity over the course of my career to be a you know an entrepreneur, to work with everything from 35 psychologist to psychiatrist on behavioral research to financial services to all kinds of things. I've been a, a C-level executive, so it's been it's been a, a wild ride and I have enjoyed every second of it. To quote Edgar Allan Poe, you know, I'm you know I, I'm enjoying every minute of my insanity. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. So Mark, let, let's start out by slaughtering a few fatted calves. The first thing I'd like to explore is the term human capital management. I know you have some genteel views on this. Marcus, I, I, I hate that word so fucking much. I don't even know how, you know, to me, that, that just is the epitome. Frederick Taylor probably dances in hell and glee every time he hears that <laughs> word. It, it is the modernization of Frederick Taylor's people are stupid, okay? You know, if you are born white and privileged, your job is to exploit them. And so somebody came up with a cooler term as to let's exploit people and actually totally dehumanize them. And, you know, maybe then we can count their noses on a balance sheet or something like that. That term is so repugnant in everything it represents. Excellent. So we've set the tone. What I want to really explore is why Despite 300 years of the Industrial Revolution, have we not cottoned on to the fact that by dehumanizing people, we derive significantly less value from them, we drive out any form of discretionary effort, and we create hostility between the workforce and the owners or management? What the fuck's going on there? 
Well, you know, Marcus, I look at some of the models and, you know, in, in addition to one of my least favorite people in history, uh, you know, Frederick Tiller would be John Calvin. Some people were born to be privileged. And if you're born rich, that's because God likes you. And if you're born poor, it's because he doesn't. So you deserve to be punished. And so I think a lot of the model reinforces that. You know, if I if I achieve some level of success and everything like that, it's my job to exploit these poor, ignorant people and everything like that. And they're only getting what they deserve. You know, then we look at the whole idea of nobility and everything like that. You know, I am born into a certain family or born into a certain thing. And therefore, I have this sense of entitlement that everybody's supposed to do my bidding. And, you know, if you happen to be, you know, on the right side of the dice on that, that looks pretty good to you. You know, this is pretty cool. Okay, the sense of actually having to earn something like respect or success or anything like that, that sounds like a lot of work. Okay, and, you know, in in certain families, that hasn't happened in a lot of generations. And then there's just the, the whole idea that leadership and management, effective leadership and management is work. It never stops. The scariest thing, one of the best things that I have ever read Marcus, in, in, in my career is a, a few years ago, Stephen M.R. Covey, Stephen Covey's son, yeah. wrote a book called The Speed of Trust. Absolutely. And he was able to synthesize something that, you know, had kind of eluded me on the tip of my tongue for, for a very long time. And he talks about that fundamentally there are three levels of trust. The first level of trust is what he calls statutory trust. And that's the stuff that John Calvin and the Pope and everything like that gave to rich people and people in power. It said, if people are in power, it's because God meant them to be and everything, and so we should obey them. Then with the advent of of the MBA, not not probably literally, but close, we came up with the next level of trust, which is knowledge-based trust, which is if I have a CV that goes to four pages and a business card that requires an eight and a half by 11 sheet, and I have a whole bunch of certifications and I'm bona fide and certified and all those things. You should trust me because I'm smarter than you. And then finally, and more realistically, there's a kind of trust that goes back to when we were living in caves together and hunted and being hunted. And that's personal-based trust. That's intimacy-based trust. It says, I've shared experiences with you and everything like that. And that's really the trust that matters. And I think that the, the problem with that is you can teach people that concept, Marcus, but to, to embrace that and realizing the fact that I'm wealthy, the fact that I have a title, the fact that, you know, I have this privilege doesn't mean shit to the people who meet me. That's a, that's a very scary, daunting thing. You know, I, I know when I've encountered over the course of my career, when these people come out with their shiny new MBA, but they just paid six figures for it, everything like that. And, you know, they, they report and I'm here to run my country, you know, please issue me my country. Because I just spent two years being taught by people and pampered and petted and being told I'm the smartest person in the world. And when you explain to them, they didn't actually teach you how to lead anything. You you should go get your money back. Okay. Uh, Nobody wants to hear that, Marcus. That leadership is hard. The building trust is hard. But those things, they they take work. Well, statutory trust and to some degree that knowledge-based trust where it's based on a sense of entitlement generally on the battlefield results in your own troops putting a bullet in the back of your head. And, Funny how that works, yeah. <laughs> so what, what we also see with that kind of entitled leadership, and I use the term as loosely as possible, what you find is that the workforce will find ways of doing the minimum necessary to not be noticed or punished and will actively disengage and put spanners in the machinery. Whereas when we find companies that have highly engaged employees, we see 300% plus increase in productivity and 
profitability. We see much lower turnover rates, much lower levels of absenteeism and sickness, much lower rates of uh, injury, and so forth. So for the hard-nosed capitalist who thinks this stuff is fluffy, what do you say to them? Well, like you said, Marcus, you know, the, the reality is when I first started working in this area, you know, four decades ago, there really wasn't a name for it. We call it morale. We did all kinds of things. We dabbled in it. The reality is today there is data that says that there is no question that engaged employees outperform unengaged employees by an order of magnitude for all the reasons that you say. The data is there. If you look at the top performing organizations in every field, every field that there are, Okay, under any data that you want to look at, whether it's capital, whether it's it's gross profit, whatever it is, you're going to find that all of them have an excellent people strategy, not a human capital strategy, an excellent people strategy. That is the thing that defines them. That is the thing where they excel. That that's one of the things that we talk about. One of the pet peeves that I have is like when I'm looking at it, saying the data is here. Okay, this is not soft data. There is nothing soft about this. Okay, you're looking at the statistics. You're looking at the performance, you're looking at the contribution. And, and people who want to argue about it and bray about it are usually people, Marcus, who want to do it half-assed. It's, it's, you know, like one, of, one, of the, one of the questions that is really annoying to me when I'm doing an intake with a new client is their, their first two questions is, you know, uh, well, how long is this going to take and how much is it going to cost? Uh-huh. I'm like, well, those are really good questions. And when I figure out what we need to do, I may be able to answer those questions for you. Like, what do you mean? So I don't know what we need to do yet. Uh, Unlike a lot of other big consulting firms, I do not have a book of solutions, okay, that was issued to me that, you know, all the solutions are in there and all I have to do is find you in the index and I can plug in the right solution and everything will become perfect. Uh, It doesn't work that way. The first thing we need to do is we need to do a diagnostic, okay, and find out what are your issues. Like a a great example from about 15 years ago, Marcus, is I, I get a call from this guy and he calls me out and he says, you know, I need you to re- revise my compensation strategy. And I said, well, why do you think that? And he said, well, because my senior managers and my leadership are quitting. So I go out and I collect some data and I come back to him. I said, I don't think the problem is your compensation. And he looks at me and he says, well, I'm talking to firms from San Francisco and L.A. and everything like that. And they're all telling me that they can fix this for me with compensation. I said, OK. He said, oh, then you agree? I said, no, you should hire one of them. I don't think that's the problem. And my experience has been that when I come in and I give you the solution that you want, not the solution that fixes your problem, you, like most CEOs, have short-term memory. You don't remember that I gave you what you asked for, not what you needed. The problem becomes you hired the wrong consultant, not I I implemented the wrong solution. So I went about my way and everything. Well, about eight months later, I get a call from the guy and he says, how did you know? (laughs) How did I know what? He said, how did you know it wasn't a compensation problem? I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, I brought in this big fancy firm from San Francisco and they charged me six figures and everything like that. And my problem didn't go away. I said, ouch, that pinch is done then. <laughs> yeah. He said, how did you know? I said, I didn't know for absolute sure, but I just, you know, I've been doing this for a couple of weeks now. And, and, and just looking at it is everybody thinks that throwing money at things at compensation is the issue and everything like that. And so when we dug into it, what we found out, Marcus, is it came down to one person. He had one leader in his organization that was so absolutely toxic that that person was creating that issue. 
The really, really sad part about it is that one person that was really toxic was also a very well-connected young man whose dad sat on the board. And so the organization refused to deal with that. Yep. But that guy cost them literally millions of dollars turnover. He was the he was the essence of toxicity. And that's something that that's something that I don't think businesses and organizations have a real grasp on is the impact that one toxic leader can have in an organization and the higher up they are, the more of an impact they can have. But that's the big thing is, you know, how can I do it cheaply and how do I do it fast? Part of the problem there, though, is that there is a hangover effect that lasts for years or even decades. And the hidden cost of wrong hires is always understated. I remember reading report after report saying that the cost of a wrong hire in sales was around five times salary. Actually, in enterprise sales, it's anywhere between 35 and 125 times salary. If you get away with 35 times, the angels are basically... You're the top 1%. (laughs) You've got a rose petal bed to lie on because people don't think about the knock-on effect. And... One thing that really befuddles me is why leadership spends so little time tackling the really difficult, shitty, gnarly questions. One of my favorite expressions is you, can ro- you can't polish a turd, but you can roll it in glitter. Um, right. It's still a turd. The problem is that far, far too often, they're not asking the difficult questions. They're not looking in the ugly mirror. And they don't spend anywhere near enough time in reflection on even the most basic of questions. How can that persist? Because to my mind, corporations are run primarily on the fuel of inertia. I think that's right, Marcus. And I think if you take a look at it, a lot of leadership models are very, very flawed. Is you, You look at it and say, oh, this person's really, really good at what they do. I know we'll put them in charge. Okay. Well, the fact that they're very good at doing a task doesn't mean they're good at leading other people as well. The other fact that the other ugly fact that nobody likes to talk about is survey after survey after surveys come out in the last decade that says 65% of people that move into leadership roles move into leadership roles for the wrong reason. That reason is very simple. They move in it because they want to make more money. They don't give a rat's ass about making the world a better place. They don't give a rat's ass about developing people. They don't give a rat's ass about building a better organization. What they do is they want to make more money and they want more status. They want things. So there's a huge flaw right there is you have somebody that is going into the job for all of the wrong reasons. And, you know, and, and, and when you have that entitlement. Yeah. When, you, when you're going into that and that's the mentality is, is, you know, I'm going to there is one of the nicest things that I ever had happen to me is a number of years ago, I was speaking at a, uh, session for biomechanical engineers. These are really, really smart people. These are the people who are applying robotics to medicine and everything like that. And I was on a panel with uh, an emerging leadership group with a, with a bunch of people from the industry. And I was asked, well, what's the first question, you know, that we should all think about in terms of, you know, be- before we go in and we apply for our first leadership job? I said, the first question you need to think about is why do I want to be a leader? What is driving this decision? What is my motivation? And if you can't come up with a reason other than I want to make more money and I want more status, then turn around and go a different direction because you're going to be a lousy leader. Well, the thing that happened recently that was super interesting, Marcus, was I, I got a, a LinkedIn thing from a guy I hadn't interacted with in 10 years. And he was a, he, he was a, he was a young up-and-comer 
in that thing. And, and now he is the uh, CEO of a multi-billion dollar business. And he said, I remember sitting in there and thinking that was so profound that you said that. And he said, I wanted to share with you that I now have the privilege of being the sponsor for the leadership cohort in our organization. And every time I kick off a cohort, I use that quote and I attribute to you. He said, as you sit here in this room today, the question I want you to ask yourselves is what brought you here? And I want you to think very, very carefully about that. And there's no shame in recognizing that the reason that you're that you're you you're pursuing this course is the wrong reason and go a different way. And so that's a huge one is, you know, when you have a model that is flawed in terms of what we look for in leaders and then number two reinforces a bunch of the wrong things. And then the third thing that, that really gets into it is you know, there's this whole concept, Marcus, of the natural leader. You know, King Arthur, they come out of the womb, you know, with, you know, with their, all of the leadership skills intact. I think that there are people who have natural leadership tendencies. Yeah. But there, there is nobody that, you know, there is nobody. King Arthur was an awesome myth. In, in fact, uh, I love the Arthurian legend. It's, it's, it's one of the things that I, I, I really, really embrace. My, my shadow character is Merlin. And I said, why be Arthur when you can sit in the background and fuck with people? Okay. And, and, and you know, <laughs> nobody's trying to put a knife in your back. Okay. It's like that idea of this natural born leader that, you know, just emerges from the womb, just very, very, very rare, like a no unicorn. One, no one pops out their mother's womb, a natural salesperson, a natural no. leader, a natural manager. It's an acquired skill. And one of the things that really flabbergasts me, and I think this has definitely been lost. I have a real bee in my bonnet because I think Milton Friedman is another one of uh, Satan's lieutenants. The whole idea that um, we should be um, worshipping in the church of finance at the altar of shareholder value is just obscene. A business that does not serve its customers, it doesn't serve its people and it doesn't serve its community is a bad business. You make good profit by doing that well. As you've alluded to, with all of the data that demonstrates that companies that have a really good people strategy that are customer-centric or pro... I've been using the hashtag pro-customer because I think that so much of selling and leadership and management actually has the customer as an irritating inconvenience at the end of a long chain of process and lining people's pockets and stroking their egos. And so my question is this, what needs to change in terms of leadership culture, compensation and measurement for any positive lasting change to sustain? The first thing is what I the paradigm that I promote to people, Marcus, is a paradigm of stakeholdership, not shareholdership. When I say in terms of stakeholders, I say every organization, whether you're a for-profit, not-for-profit, government entity or whatever, you have multiple stakeholders. You know, one of your stakeholders is, of course, the people you provide a service to. But equally important as a stakeholder are your employees. Equally important are your as the community that you serve. And when you understand that you are serving multiple constituencies and when you start to make trade-offs, if, you know, if you're making the trade-offs and you're making them knowingly and you're making them articulately and you're making them intelligently and, and you're having that conversation with stakeholders, that there are times where we have to flex things in order to do one thing to survive – I think you you have a completely different model. But when you see businesses that really embrace that stakeholder model that says we're not going to exploit one group for the betterment of the other, 
they're just much more powerful. So recognizing that is that as a leader, you are managing multiple constituencies. The other thing about leadership is, you know, one of the other terms like human capital, it actually gives me a gag reflex is servant leadership. I understand the concept and I do believe that leadership is a gift from people who follow you. John Maxwell has a great line. He says, if you're a leader and you look back and nobody's following you, you're just taking a walk. You aren't leading anybody. (laughs) But I think that the the whole servant leadership thing is this thing is I, I think that I think that you have to be an interpreter. I think that as a leader, you are that person that needs to be able working with a team to recognize that you have competing interests of multiple stakeholders. And what your job is to do is to create bridges between those stakeholders so that they understand how they all connect together. You know, like one of the things that we have going on, you know, we've got a new president now in the United States. Thank you, Jesus. Okay. You know, the madman, you know, went, went back to Florida where he belongs. But the scary part is what we're now seeing is political solutions to social problems. We're just going to give everybody in the world an income for the 10 years it takes until we run out of money. Okay. And there's nothing left. Okay. And those things, and, and you know, or we, we look at things where we're just going to, you know, we're going to, where they don't, li- they don't step back and look at and say, everything in the world, Marcus, is, is systemic. Nothing operates in a vacuum. You know, and that's the thing when you learn as a leader, if you really become effective as a leader, you recognize everything that you do, you know, whether you want to call it the butterfly effect or whatever, everything that happens has an effect on other things. And when you are not recognizing that and you are not looking at that and stepping back and really looking at it from that level of integration saying, okay, when I do this, what is the, what is the effect going to be? That's when there's a prescription for disaster. I can tell you in so many organizations I worked with, you know, like I remember the organization I worked with when I came out here, we were sitting in the organization and we're here in Eugene, Oregon, you know, they, they now they call it part of the Silicon Shire. And we were, we were doing very, very, very well. And we were a horrible place to work if you were one of our factory employees. It's, uh, there was an abundant workforce because um, they had gutted timber. And so you had a bunch of displaced people and everything. So there are a bunch of young, arrogant guys running this business, congratulating each other on how, how brilliant they were and paying themselves enormous bonuses and everything like that. And I remember just being abhorred, saying, you know, why are we paying our people so badly? And these guys, you know, worshipped at Milton Freedom Strike. Well, why should we pay them any more money if we don't, if we don't have to? I said, because they can't pay their bills. We have a husband and wife working for us, and they're still qualified for public assistance. And that's morally wrong. And we're, we're not doing that because we can't pay our bills because we're not making profit. Just patriot, oh, you're such an idealist and patted me on the head and everything like that. And I said, you're going to get a bill here one of these days where this is all going to go to shit in a handbasket. And two years later, that happened, Marcus. Okay, the market collapsed. It was like, I wasn't very popular. So I said, so all you guys are going to get back all those bonuses you earned, right? And I said, well, what do you mean? <laughs> I said, well, you guys were brilliant. So you guys were responsible for all the success and everything like that, you know, because you guys all went out and built yourself second home. So I said, so I'm assuming you're going to pony up and do the right thing now because it was under your leadership that you ran this thing over a cliff. Mm-hmm. So that was not well received. Well, what happened that was good about it, Marcus, is the president finally allowed us to do some things in terms of how we worked with our employees that we would have never tolerated before. We totally redesigned our compensation system and our promotional systems and a whole bunch of things. And he was absolutely stunned 
because a year and a half into it, he said, Jesus, we're making more money. Turnover is down. Absenteeism is down. Medical expenses are down. Productivity is up. I said, yeah, isn't that interesting? When people feel like they have skin in the game and they feel like they're being treated with respect and they feel like they're being valued as a human being and they feel like they're being compensated for it, it's scary. Productivity breaks out. Engagement breaks out. Morale breaks out. Who would have thunk? And to his credit, when he was interviewed by a bunch of other colleagues about the biggest impediment, you know, when we created this model, because it was very, you know, this was 35 years. Everybody was studying. It was like, oh, my God, you guys are Jesus. You know, what did you do? And so what was the biggest impediment? He said, the biggest impediment was me. You know, I was a diehard capitalist. He said, you know, I tortured these guys for a year. You know, once a week, they would come in and tell me they wanted to do it. Once a week, I would threaten to fire them and beat them and send them back to their jobs. He said, I finally got tired of beating them because my arms were too tired. <laughs> and, and I actually let him do it. And it, it rocked my world. I would have never believed this was totally antithetical to everything I'd ever believed about human nature, about business models, about any of it. I would have never believed that engaging people, we didn't call it that, but engaging people and treating people fairly and paying them fairly would have this kind of an impact on the business. Two other phenomenal examples of this. Ian Dodds, I don't know if you know Ian. Ian turned around factory after factory in ICL. It was massively unionized. It was that they had cadres of the Communist Party um, that was permanently on strike. And uh, he had his epiphany when he came home from work and his parents had come home. He was still living at home. They were complaining about their manager. The following day, he started talking to the employees. And uh, what was really interesting, within five years, he turned the worst performing factory into the best performing factory. And then he spent the rest of his career doing this. Um, Michael Puck also faced exactly the same thing. I mean, he was working in a company that was making explosives and there were huge numbers of injuries and so on. And uh, they created well-being programs, they created pensions, they created proper health cover. And miraculously, profits went up, people were queuing to come and join them, their talent increased, uh, retention increased. And what what still fascinates me is, uh, and I've started terming them greeders, greedy leadership that is so fixated on the short term. And I think part of this is also, again, stems out of the way the markets work, that one or two bad quarters, that's pretty much the end of an executive's career. So institutional shareholders who don't really know how to run a manufacturing business or a pharmaceutical business or a recruitment business or an IT business have massive undue power and people pander to them. And it takes really strong, courageous leadership to put, flip them the bird and say, you know, we're not doing that. Uh, we're going to do this properly. Um, and we're going to build a strong, sustainable business built on good principles with uh, a moral backbone where values and actually determine our decisions, where we will value our people, we'll value our customers, we'll value our suppliers, and we'll behave with some humanity. But there's not a lot of courage out there. There's confederacy of cowards in the boardroom. 
Well, yeah, the corporation is an evil thing, you know, they, in a lot of ways. Like there's an interesting, there's, you know, like one of the things we get into a lot in the United States is that corporations have personhood. They literally have all the rights of a person. There's a great meme that I have that says, I'll believe the corporations are a person when Texas hangs one, <laughs> you know, because they, they, they can't be... <laughs> They can't be prosecuted. So they, they become this entity that you can hide behind. And you're absolutely right, Marcus. Is I have a client that I, I've worked with him on and off for 30 years. And I remember his first company that he and his, his partner built. It was very, very successful. And they took it public. And he told me, he said, that is the one thing that I would never do again. Is he said, when we went public, the dynamics changed. And you got a bunch of 12-year-olds sitting in there, you know, looking at your balance sheet and everything like that and evaluating whether you were a success or not. And none of these people have ever built a business or done anything. You know, one of the great lines, uh, you know, Pretty Woman was a pretty awful movie. <laughs> but there was a great line in there where Julia Roberts says to Richard Gere is like, so you're rich, but what do you actually do? What value do you actually create other than making money? Have you ever built anything? Have you ever created jobs, you know, or anything like that? So bottom line is you're just kind of a parasite. You know, you, you just you just live off of the money. But you're right. But we we put those people up and we put a, we put them on a pedestal that's saying, you know, if you're this person and in these, you know, and a lot of the, the thing that's really sad in a lot of cases, like I said, it's institutional shareholders that people are, you know, these are the these are the freaking retirement funds for school districts and stuff that are making these decisions because there's some 24 year old back there buying and selling stock for the portfolio because of the rate of return without looking at the bigger picture. And it's, it's, a, it's very, very short-term thinking. And, you know, if you look at the 1980s, Mark, you and I are old enough to remember that, is that, you know, when you didn't see organizations lay people off because they could bump up their bottom line 10%. You know, they might lay them off because they, they were struggling, but then all of a sudden they got away with it. And so you started hearing all of this outsourcing and downsizing bullshit and everything like that. And, and what it was is, Okay, we can no longer exploit people in the Western world. Okay, but we found all these other interesting places in Asia and everything like that we where we can exploit people. Now the funny part is those countries have gotten wise, and there are no small undeveloped countries to exploit anymore. They've all caught on to what's going on, and they're they you know there those markets aren't there. So now a lot of uh, I see a lot of corporate chagrin that they're having to come back to places like the UK and places like the United States and actually talk to workers again that they shat on. For 20 years, because the Asians and everybody have, have gotten smart to them and won't let them do it anymore. Do you know what the collective noun for bankers is? <laughs> a once. <laughs> <laughs> it goes down the food chain because very often you find a retired dentist and some financier who made some dosh is now a, an investor. And what they really are, are speculators and gamblers yeah. and um, venture capital. What the fuck is all that about? If you are a tech company and you go to a VC, you have at least a 90% probability of failure. Who on God's earth would put their house on the line and put a guarantee up with the possibility of a 9 in 10 failure rate? You've got to be out of your fucking mind. But it seems to be all the rage because VC have managed to peddle um, the myth of the unicorn. And this is driven by idiocy and greed. Again, you see this all the time. Have a stab at this. The median profit of the top 100 SaaS companies on the planet today, 
What percentage? The, the profit they pay taxes on it or actual profit? <laughs> <laughs> actual profit. Probably somewhere in the, in, in terms of percentage, probably maybe 10 to 12%. Zero percent. Okay. Because they're all obsessed with growth at any cost. And so it drives some really crazy behavior. They're all focused on new logo acquisition, which is expensive. What about looking yeah. after your existing customers who cost you somewhere between six and depending on your industry, 10 or even 21 times less to sell to you, looking after them, co-developing product with your customers, having a culture that doesn't burn through your sales force and create massive uh, mental ill health where you have huge levels of turnover, which means that you're sucking up a load of cost in terms of recruitment, training, onboarding, reputation damage, the impact it has on your relationships with customers when every eight months or so you have a new account manager come in and start afresh, the impact it has on your channel partners. It's just crazy. Well, Marcus, it's not just in sales. It's interesting that it was only about 10 or 15 years ago that somebody recognized that turnover is expensive. And when you are losing trained people, that that is an expense. And it is both hard cost and soft cost. It's not just the cost. It's the, it's the soft cost of the time you put into training them. It's the impact on morale that, you know, productivity goes down. And, and, and you know, to me, again, those things were kind of intuitive. But nobody talked about it. The, the cost of a bad hire, you know, um, I, you know, you, you, you interviewed my, my, uh, my colleague, my very respected colleague, uh, Joseph Skursky, on your show, mm. and Joseph and I share a tagline called "Hire Hard, Manage Easy." You yeah. know, one of the things that I tell businesses all the time is the most important part of the recruitment process is the time you spend up front. Is the more you actually know about who you're trying to hire and what's going to be successful, and you put all of that time and energy and everything into that, is the the likelihood your success is going to go up. But but you look at the hiring process and everything like that, and I've seen situations where where we're talking about hiring people for serious money, and like like a great example is, and I worked with this guy is a is a, is his is his coach. But uh, there was an organization here in town that needed a new person to take over their philanthropic arm. They were very concerned because this guy had a, they thought he had a competitive offer from another organization. And he was very charismatic, former football player and everything like that. They wanted this guy badly. And so they interviewed him, they petted him. Well, what I found out, the guy was an abysmal failure. But what I found out is nobody actually interviewed him. Everybody wanted to have their picture taken with him because he was a star football player and everything. And they were terrified that he was going to go to work for this other organization. But nobody ever actually interviewed the guy to be sure that the guy could do his job. And so a year and a half into it, it was a complete clusterfuck. Oh. And then the funny part about it is, you know, he told me I would never have gone to work for that organization. They were our arch enemy when I was a football player. So that there wasn't enough money. There wasn't enough money in Oregon for them to hire me to do that. You know, and, and I remember telling the board that, and they were just the board. I said, none of you guys actually interviewed this guy to find out, does he have the fundamental skills to do the job? Unbelievable. One of my pals, Joe Mullins, has got a very, very successful recruitment business. And his consultants, on average, bill three to five times more than the industry average. Sure. And he has a philosophy, which is you hire for people who are high on trust, even if they're mediocre on competence because you hire for what cannot be trained. 
And the, the rule is better no breath than bad breath. The mistake people make is they treat recruitment as an inconvenience, an interruption to their busy job. In my book, managers have five lines on their job description. Hire the best people, which means that recruitment is a daily activity. For every manager, it should be something that you do a little bit every day so that you're filling the funnel and you're building the bench. And you've got five to seven really good people lined up for any vacancy that might arise. Or if you find a really good A player, beg, borrow, steal in order to hire them. The second thing is get the best out of them. That means pre-onboarding, onboarding, training, coaching, mentoring, and accountability. Make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day. So make sure they've got the minimum level of technology required in order to do the human side of their job exceptionally well. Make sure they have tools and resources, clear the path of roadblocks and protect them from acts of idiocy from above and manage inclusively. And if you follow those five principles, you can work with a team a third the size of everyone else's and produce two to three times more with less of the effort. Because if you hire well, 95% of your management problems disappear, uh, which means that you can focus on your real job, which is developing your people, strategy, planning, and all the other important stuff, which is high value. But yet again, people are so obsessed with busy work and idiotic measurement. So I want to come back to that question uh, around what needs to change in terms of executive measurement and compensation for any lasting positive change to stick. Well, you just hit it, Marcus. The biggest part of when you move into leadership is leadership. It, your, your job is to develop the talent capable of running the organization when you're gone. And what you find is that's hard work. Is when I talk to my new emerging leaders and everything like that, you know, some of them are newly promoted and they say to me, managing people is hard. It's hard work. I it's mean, the they're, hardest they're, job there is. Yeah, they're messy and they have emotions and each person is different and it's not one size fits all. And you have to figure out all these things and what's going on. I said, yeah, it is. Okay. But it's also the most rewarding when you see somebody go from somebody who is a marginal contributor, a non contributor, and you were able to light them up where you find the buttons that are their buttons that, that allow them to succeed and you remove those roadblocks from them and you watch that person become a significant contributor. That is the most, to me, that is the coolest thing in the world. And for people to understand that, we get obsessed as well, you know, with technical stuff as, you know, right now I'm running an organization that, that in the social services arena. And I had absolutely no background in that whatsoever. And I was hired by the board because the organization was a complete mess. And let's just say that the senior leadership team met my uh, coming in to be their leader with less than enthusiasm. <laughs> and then they were, they were pretty candid about that. We don't know you. You don't know anything about us. You're a for-profit guy. You know. Well, I've been there three years now. Now they said, you know, you're not so bad after all. You actually let us do what we do. You respect us in our areas. You block and tackle for us. You get us the resources. This isn't so bad after all. Okay. And oh, by the way, the people were hiring a lot better. And so learning those things that, it, that leadership really is that is when you're a leader, you, you don't get paid for what you do, Marcus. You should be get paid for what you're leaving behind. It's a one of, one of the measures that I look at at measuring a CEO's success is how many CEOs have you trained? If I look at an organization 
And I, I look at somebody and there are no CEOs that have ever come out of there. That tells me something about them. You know, Jack Welch is a guy that has been both back in the 80s and everything. He was put on a pedestal and, and, Jack, would, and, and Jack has now been reviled. But I will say at one time, GE was in the United States considered one of the top graduate schools for leaders in the United States. And one of the things that he did do is that Welch took a very, very different model and said that if you're going to be an emerging leader in my organization, you got to learn to do a bunch of things. You may come into my organization as a finance guy, but at some point in your career, you're going to do HR, you're going to do engineering, you're going to do marketing, you're going to do all of those things. We're going to find out what your geniuses are, what you're really good at, but you're going to learn that if you are going to be a leader and lead an organization, you're not the violin virtuoso, you're the conductor of the orchestra. So how well you play a singular instrument is not what's going to decide whether or not you're an effective leader. And that's a very important thing. Again, the evidence on this is really very clear, too, that organizations that have a lot of range in their people, where you have generalists, will tend to overperform against organizations that hire specialists, unless it is an area that requires very specialist skills from very early on in their career. I've worked across 500 different segments of the market, and the ability to draw on lessons from everything from selling aircraft carriers to naked platters to every hue, shape, and color of software to spiritualism and female fantasy fulfillment coaching, matchmaking, and everything in between means that I have enormous flexibility. And when Darwin was talking about survival of the fittest, he was talking about the ones that could adapt best to the current environment. Particularly now, the pace of change is so rapid, but some fundamentals still remain at the heart of leadership. And this is one of the things I'd love to talk to you about, which is apprenticeships. I don't think that there is anywhere near enough emphasis on giving people the runway that they need to move into a management and then a leadership role. And so I'd love your thoughts in terms of what needs to change around the culture of and the the runway that people have to move into that space. Couldn't agree with you more, Marcus. One of the things that, you know, the old model is, you know, in so many areas is, you know, if you were going to become a lawyer back in, you know, 150 years ago, you didn't go to law school, you read law you went and apprenticed under a master who taught you that. You know, I think that the, the British system of solicitors and barristers is, is superior to ours from that. Where, and I think management is the same thing. Is you know, One of the things that, that in organizations that I work with is we start development of our leaders very, very early on. When we identify emerging leaders, we assign them a mentor and a coach in addition to their, their, their direct report. We also put them through a fundamental series of of trainings that I developed a number of years ago. We call them foundational leadership skills. Every person that's going to be a leader in my organization, whether you're coming in as a brand new supervisor or lead, or you're an executive goes through that, no exceptions. I don't care if you have an MBA or a PhD or whatever, this is how we do it. And this way we're going to share a language, you're going to share the things and they go through as a cohort together. And, you know, and we, we actually work through there. Um, I try to spend as the executive director 40 to 50% of my time coaching either my direct reports or other direct reports. 
Because the other thing is I'm, I'm not a huge Hillary Clinton fan, but the one line that I completely agree with her is it takes a village to raise a child. And so in our cohort model, I've made it very clear to my leadership team, all of us are here to mentor the next generation. That is part of your job. That, that is not an ancillary to your job. That is your job. And that whole idea of helping them through those things and experiencing those things. The other thing that you have to allow them to do is you have to allow them to make mistakes. Absolutely. They're going to make mistakes. And, you know, my, my thing is, unless somebody loses an eye, okay, you know, there are mistakes that you only get one chance to make. Okay, one time is too many. But there are other things there that saying, you show me a person that's never made a mistake, and I'm showing you a, either somebody that is, is dishonest, or I'm showing to you somebody that's a disaster waiting to happen, because all of us have a mistake in our future. Okay, yeah. I prefer it happen on somebody else's watch than mine when that, that, that person hits the wall at 120 miles an hour that has never made a mistake before. I know personally in my career, when I wrote my first book in 2008, uh, my book is called Managing Whole People, You Know, One Man's Journey. And the way I tell people about it is I say, these are all the fuck ups and mistakes and things that I did. I was a miserable, arrogant young son bitch, you know, working for people who put up with me anyway. And what this is an attempt to do is to, is to give you a shortcut to not do all the stupid things that I spent the first 15 years of my career doing, because I did a lot of them, okay? And those are the things that I really, really remember is, ouch, that really pinched. Or managers I worked with that were just absolutely awful. And I remember just thinking is, please, God, I never want to look in the mirror and see that person there that, you know, just remembering that person and how they managed and how they led, they were just absolutely horrific. And, and having that conversation with people about, you know, that, that leadership is hard work and that, that, that people are very, very different. And the other thing is when I was growing up as a human resources practitioner, we didn't call it, we call it personnel back then. You know, we, we also had this dumbass thing is people come to work, leave your crap at home. Okay. I don't care about the fact you have a sick kid or, you know, a parent or whatever, you know, you're here to do the job and I own you for eight to 12 hours a day and everything and leave all your baggage behind. Well, you know what? That's bullshit. Okay. We manage whole people. They're whole people. And I'm not saying that you need to be your people's therapist and doctor and, you know, and, and give them spells of counseling and everything like that. But the idea that you are managing a whole person and the fact that you value them as a whole person is another thing that is huge. If you see somebody that has been a star performer and their performance starts to slip, that is not the time to administer a beating. Okay, that should be a red flag that something is going on with that person and it's an opportunity for an intervention. And if you intervene and you do it at the right time in the right place, they actually realize you give a rat's ass about them. Okay, the likelihood that you're going to get them back on track to at least the level of performance they had, maybe in a higher level of performance, is much more because they are people. I've seen this many times throughout my career, and um, it's the leaders that actually gave a rat's ass about their people, where they hit difficult times, and then everyone rallied around. People were willing to take pay cuts. They were willing to put in extra hours. They all rolled up their sleeves. Managers who didn't, they were left high and dry, and people did not support them. The challenge here is that managing people is a paradox because in order to get the best out of them, you need to let them fail. You need to uh, allow your humanity and their humanity to shine. You need to encourage 
constructive conflict. And this, again, is another huge handicap for many managers, that they would rather avoid all forms of conflict. They would rather hire people in their own image only weaker so that they don't pose a threat. In my book, when I hire, I look for people who I can be made redundant by. I look for my next successor. And one of the first questions I'll ask is, so what's your next job after this one? How can we help you achieve that? Because I don't want somebody who is the finished article. I want someone who can grow into it, into the role. And I also want to make sure that they do move on to bigger and better things. And nothing, nothing thrills me more than my clients making massive progress or my team members surpassing anything that I've ever done. It just does not compute that my ego can get in the way of that progress. But you're right, Marcus, that is a thing for people is, you know, the, the old expression, you know, what I tell people is if you're the smartest guy in the room, wherever you hang out, you're hanging out in the wrong rooms. Absolutely. It's, it's a case of where, you know, again, it's that whole measurement of saying that I'm in the legacy stage of my career now. Yes. And, and I look back and, and one of the things that I'm very proud of is when I take a look at some of the people over the course of my career that I had to mentor and coach and everything, and they're now vice presidents of human resources and successful consultants and successful executives. That gives me tremendous pride, okay, and that they're smarter and better than I was and that their training people are going to be smarter and better than there. That's the legacy that we need to leave behind. And if you feel threatened by somebody, you're in the wrong line of work. Okay, that somebody is 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 threatening you, is smarter than you, is for God's sake, you know, as you don't have anybody that's smarter than you, God save us all. Okay, that it's a, and I find that's especially hard for entrepreneurs, you know, because the, the entrepreneurs by their nature, I make all the decisions, I do all the things, I'm the person that got the business to this level. I'm like, right, you you know, so all roads lead to you. You also have become the cork in the in the neck of the bottle. Okay, because nothing can get it past you. Yeah. And and so helping them realize that and let go of that is saying, you know, that 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 is going to be the biggest impediment to your growth is if you can't let go of some of this stuff. And the other part, you know, is is like you say, is letting somebody fail. But that's a reflection of you. It's a case of if you let them fail to where they hurt themselves or they hurt the organization, that is a failure. But they, they have to fail. OK, that's part of their learning. That's part of that experience. It's it's a case of where I see the same thing in parenting. You know, these people that wrap their kids in a cocoon, you know, and then the kid turns 18, you know, and they take them to the bus stop. It's like the world is your oyster. The kids never even bought their own lunch. Okay. They're totally unprepared to go out into a world where everybody doesn't care about them. You know, I used to tell my kids, you know, there are a billion people in China that get up, eat three bowls of brown rice every day and don't give a rat's ass about you. Okay, welcome to the world. Okay, the world is not here to serve you. You are in the world. Be a part of the world. Be fair to the world. But understand that, you know, I, I used to say that the job, just like the job of, of a leader is to prepare the next generation, my not very politically correct description of parenting is you take 18 years to civilize your children before you turn them loose on polite society. Okay, <laughs> that, you know, that they, that, you know they're, they're not somebody... You wouldn't like, okay, that, that you, you know, people would say, God, your children are not just, you know, how did that happen? Well, leadership is it has that same model. Is it, you know, how do you how do you burnish those skills and how do you do those things? And, and to your point that 
One of my favorite uh, guys that I'm reading right now is a is a is a young uh, British American guy named Simon Sinek, and he has a couple books. The first is Start with Why, and I've had people say, "Oh, Start with Why is boring," and I said, "Well, it's boring to you if you're under 40 because it's so fucking obvious. You're like, why should anybody have to write a book about that?" And I said, "Well, I'm here to tell you, there's a whole bunch of us that wasn't that friggin' obvious." Okay, yeah. so when he lit us up. But his second book is also a really, really interesting one, Marcus. It's, a, it's called uh, Why Leaders Eat Last. And it is basically written in the context of he worked with special operators in the Navy SEALs. Yeah. And the whole idea of leader is service and how leadership is about serving the people. And, you know, you used a military analogy is, you know, about getting fragged. Okay, that's what we call it in the U.S., where you get shot in the back of the head by your own troops. Okay. Yeah. It's. The expression I use with people when we're building our team is, who do you want in your foxhole with you? When things are really going on and things are really in a scary place for the business, who do you want in your foxhole with you? And if you don't want that person in your foxhole with you, I don't care how smart or how charming or whatever they are, okay, really think about that, whether that's somebody do you want, you want to have on your team. If you have somebody that is incapable of being a member of a team, is incapable of realizing that we are all in this together. Again, I use terrible movie analogies, but the, the movie, uh, An Officer and a Gentleman, you know, 100 years ago, where Richard Gere comes in there, and he's obnoxious, okay? He is, and he's better than everybody, but Luke Hussage just proceeds to just beat his ass because it's like, you will never graduate from this class because you're a prima donna. You don't understand what it means to be an officer and a gentleman. You don't understand what it means to be a leader. You know, you're, you're, you're going to be that guy like John Maxwell. You're, you know, you're just taking a walk. Okay. There's nobody behind you. And when I look at the, when I look at the way we're still training leaders today, Marcus, when I look at MBA curriculums and stuff like that, the amount of curriculum is actually on leading people and understanding people. It actually talks about concepts like emotional intelligence and social intelligence are very, very few and far between. I had a huge brawl with a, with a former dean of the business school at the University of Oregon 20 years ago, where we actually had one of the only masters in human resources programs in the country at the time, which he hated. He was doing everything he could to stomp it out. And I told him, I said, Jim, you have a pretty mediocre MBA program because everybody in the world wants to have one. So you actually have a unique value proposition. You actually have a master's in human resources. And I'm here to tell you, there's a huge demand for that, for managing people and being good at that. And you're trying to stomp it out. You know, you're working in a Me Too product, chasing everybody else in the friggin' country to have an MBA, and your MBA is, is okay. Whereas you have the opportunity to go in this other niche that is completely wide open yeah. and do something different. And it's funny because he later became a partner and a client. But at the time when I, you know, I was just like, I'm, I'm just telling you, you know, I'm hiring these kids. Okay, they come out of here incredibly arrogant. You know, they're 25 years old. They just spent, you know, 75 or 100,000 dollars. And I'm here to run my continent. It's like you can't find the bathroom by yourself at this point. Okay, you're not prepared to lead anybody. And they didn't teach any of that shit. There's a wonderful book that I have to my left here called Dangerous Company by yeah. Charlie Madigan, which is all the MBAs and the big four and how they managed to take perfectly brilliant companies and turn them to shit. Destroy them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, I think um, the, the other book that I'm really fond of is uh, Simon Sinek's book, uh, Infinite Games, because yes. I think that what we need to do is shift the mentality and the language that we use, the mindset, 
away from playing a zero-sum game where one person wins and another loses. My pal Alan Sang is a very highly respected negotiator, and he makes the point that anyone who sells you a program how to win at negotiation obviously doesn't fucking understand negotiation. <laughs> and because if you win, the other person loses and someone's yes. going to try and get even. Yes. You need to be able to create agreements that will weather adversity, change, and the test of time. And we, we really have to shift our thinking culturally in business. Um, and in all honesty, I think we're, it's too late and we're screwed. The Chinese operate on 100-year plans. Yes. Uh, we operate on quarterly reporting cycles. And that is an impossible hurdle to overcome because uh, at the end of the Korean War, the American delegation rented three floors of the Hilton for three months. The Chinese rented a five-bedroom house for three years. Mm-hmm. It was a foregone conclusion what was going, what the outcome was going to be. And the Americans were not going to win it, and they didn't. And we're still paying that price 50, 60 years later. So, look, we've come to the top of the hour, sadly. I'm heartbroken because I could talk to you for hours. What are you wrestling with? What are you struggling with at the moment? Some of it we've talked about, Marcus. I look at this where it is so clear that our models are broken. You know, there, there has to be a collective societal headache that says, you know, it, you know, we keep pounding our heads. You know, we, we look at where things are at. Is if, if you look at the trust barometers that are out there and everything like that, trust is at the lowest level that it's been in decades. And yet we keep trying to do some of the same things. And, you know, I'm, I'm doing my little part. And I'm trying to go out there one organization at a time, you know, work with people and do my training and everything like that. But I look at the, I, I also look at things as you and I were talking about some of our national and international leadership. I, you know, I'm sorry, I'm not a big fan of your, your prime minister. Oh, he's an and, and And the orange menace, you know, finally went away is it, that the fact that that guy was elected at all in the first place and he got, and he got, and he got the number of votes he has. And that people still embrace those models of leadership, it's like Jesus. It's, it's but, but, oh my God. The cause of that started 30 years ago. The right was very smart, and they shifted the discourse very, very subtly to the right, to the point where Trump was a, a natural byproduct. He was a symptom. He wasn't the cause. I would agree. And, and like you say, I, I just I want to see the model change. I think that they're... We are we are reaching a time and a place where we're in a world economy now that the butterfly effect is very, very real. So to your point, that whole zero sum gain thing is we, we got to let go of it. That Everything has an impact on everything else. It's, it's a case of where we got to look at our leadership models, Marcus, and we and we have to and we have to do it now. OK, because it's a to your point, we don't we don't have a lot of time. I'm going to throw down the gauntlet in that case. So here's a challenge for you. OK. We've recently launched a global community called Sales a Force for Good. And what we're trying to do is prove the ROI for all the things that you and I have been talking about today. I'd love for you to come and not volunteer full time, obviously, but to be on panels and um, roundtables to share your experience of the impact of this kind of uh, more positive more infinite uh, gameplay, where the objective is to make the pie bigger rather than take a bigger slice of a shrinking pie. And our mission is to take eight companies to a billion dollars over the next eight years without having to sell our souls, without having to compromise 
and uh, to revert back to all the stupid things that you and I have been discussing. And if we can prove that, then we've got a platform that means that there is a model that others can follow. I'm all in, Marcus. Let's get this done. Excellent. I'm so pleased. There you go. Be careful what you wish for. Like I said, I'm in the legacy stage, okay? And that kind of a thing is the kind of thing that you can look back on and be proud of. Uh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. What, what are you reading, watching, listening to at the moment that you really, really rate? Like Simon Sinek a lot. I am a big, uh, for, for people who are familiar with him, Patrick Lencioni. His latest book, The Motive, is brilliant about leadership. Studying his five geniuses model right now. I'm, I'm a big Dan Pink fan. Any of those people, you know, the whole emotional intelligence thing. I, I still like Dan Goleman, you know, with emotional intelligence. Again, that's one of those things that should be should be intuitive. I love grit. I tend to be a pretty voracious reader. You know, that, to me, there, there's, there's always stuff out there that is that is really, 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 really good and really, really compelling. I've just got Eliyahu Goldratt's book, The Goal, okay. and that's really caught my attention. Motivational mapping. Have you come across that before? I've heard it. I haven't. I haven't picked it up. We'll talk about that offline, but I found that very, very insightful because if you understand whether an individual's motivations are actually being met, it will give you clarity as to whether or not they become uh, a flight risk and also how to coach and where to coach. Really very powerful. Okay, and you've got a golden ticket. You can go back and whisper in the idiot Mark's ear, age 23. What one choice bit of advice would you give him? He'd have probably ignored it, but. No, what I would have said to him is those people sitting in those exalted positions that you thought were geniuses couldn't find their ass above the hands of a roadmap. 75% of them got there opportunistically, not because of of any sense of brilliance or merit. They hung around long enough and played the political game well enough to get there. And so don't be afraid to challenge things. There may be a cost associated with it. But don't don't just sit there in awe and assume that everybody that occupied a C-level position was a genius. Mark Schaefer wrote a very good book, which just came out, called Cumulative Advantage, where he explains the science behind that. And yeah, the lucky people just get luckier because of the cumulative advantage. Anyway, okay, how can people get hold of you? Website is, is www.newparadigms.com. That's, uh, that's plural, LLC.com, mark at newparadigmsllc.com. I have a website that's gotten a little shabby because I haven't attended to it in a while. I've been busy. I'm on LinkedIn uh, and I, I, I take inquiries. Please don't try to sell me anything, at least until we've had a conversation. Any of those vehicles, Marcus, are uh, very open. Fabulous. Mark Herbert, thank you. Thank you. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this conversation insightful and helpful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you feel the urge, give the uh, podcast an honest review, one star or five stars or anywhere in between on Apple Podcasts. Now, if you're the owner or CEO of a tech company in the 10 to 50 million mark, and your goal is to grow your business and achieve real sustainable hypergrowth with highly engaged and highly productive employees, and clients who stick with you decade after decade, then let's schedule some time for a brief conversation. And if like you and uh, like uh, me and Mark, 
you're on a mission and you would love to see the sales profession get clawed back from the gamblers, speculators, shysters, and snake oil salesmen, then please get in touch with me about the community sales of force for good. Check out the hashtag hash pro customer or hashtag SAFFG. And we run events on Clubhouse, on LinkedIn, on Facebook. We're capturing all the lessons and we're making them freely available forever to anybody who wants to implement them. So if you want to get involved, then please do get in touch. My email is marcus at laughs-last.com. Thanks a lot. Stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.